Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 121 for the first part of December 2014. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the non-comet-based ideas of James McCanny. If you have not yet listened to episode 120, you should listen to that first. Professor James McCanny is an individual who has a lot of non-mainstream ideas about the way the universe works. A lot of it is based in the electric universe mythos, which holds that the primary driver behind what happens and what we see in the cosmos is caused by electricity rather than gravity and other things. For James McCanny, the primary manifestation of this deals with comets, which I discussed at length, or perhaps ad nauseum, in the previous episode. This one is going to perhaps be a bit more interesting because I'm going to discuss a hodgepodge of his other ideas, so we get a bit more of a mix rather than everything you didn't know about comets because you didn't know it because it was wrong. Before we plunge into Venus, I need to correct an analogy that I used last time for the solar wind being neutral. I used an analogy of a peanut, where you break it out of its shell and you see the seed and you claim that the bowl of shells and seeds only has seeds. Expat pointed out that the peanut is more like helium than hydrogen because it has two seeds. A better analogy would have been practically any other real nut, as opposed to the legume that is the peanut. So, think of a hazelnut, where you have a single seed surrounded by the shell, and that's your whole nut. Break it up, put the shell and seed in a bowl. Look at it. You can now easily detect both the seed, the proton of the hydrogen, and the shell, the electron of the hydrogen. Saying that there is a net excess of one over the other is simply not looking hard enough to see that you still have both. Now, moving on, I'm going to talk about Venus, as I hinted at a little bit earlier. I should start this topic out by referring you to episode 46, where I talked about the ideas of Emanuel Velikovsky. For, besides being an electric universe or EU guy, James McCanny can also be classified as a neo-Velikovskian, taking many of Velikovsky's ideas and, while not believing them exactly, holding some adaptation of them to be true. One of those is that Venus was a comet. This is also why in the last episode I talked about tail-dragging, circularizing comets' orbits. McCanny believes, in a made-up force, that he made up that is required to make an elliptical comet's orbit circular, and the evidence that he cited was one comet that after passing through the solar system had a shorter orbit, but that was simply because of a close encounter with Jupiter. Anyway, the point here, for those of you who don't really remember episode 120 very well, is that one of McCanny's primary ideas about Venus is that it was a comet at one point in time. Actually, he thinks it was in historic times, but again, that's episode 46. Another one of his Venusian ideas is that Venus rotates backwards because it used to be tidally locked with Earth, just like Earth's moon. To support that, he says this. So within uh, very recent times, Venus had a physical gravitational coupling with Earth, just like our moon, and that, uh, so it rotates backwards because it uh, literally is showing the same face to Earth all the time. Unfortunately for James, this is simply wrong. Venus does not always show the same side to Earth. You can look this up with just two numbers. 
the synodic period, and Venus's day. The synodic period is the length of time it takes an object to appear in the same spot in the solar system relative to Earth and the Sun. In other words, what is the length of time between Venus' inferior conjunction with the Sun and the next inferior conjunction with the Sun? The number is 583.92 days. You can measure that yourself if you really, really wanted to and happened to remember a year and a half later. The other number is how long Venus Day actually is. You can't, unfortunately, do this yourself. You'll need to trust NASA, ESA, or the Russians, or the Soviets, or whomever you want. You'll, you'll have to trust someone because it's really not something you can easily do yourself. They have all had space probes at Venus that measure, among other things, its rotational period. The rotational period, 243.0185 Earth days. Yeah, it spins really, really slowly. Then, for James to be right, for Venus to always show the same face to Earth, among other things, the synodic period must be the same as the day. But it's not. It's not even an even multiple of the day. So, from the time that Venus is between Earth and the Sun, to the next time that Venus is between Earth and the Sun, Venus will have gone through 2.403-ish days. So, James McCanny is wrong. It's a weird claim to make, and I, I really have no idea where he came up with it, for I've never heard anyone else make it before, but there you go. A third Venusian claim has to do with Professor McCanny needing Venus to be young, per Velikovsky. The way he does this is by claiming the following. One of the, the things that convinces us that, for example, the greenhouse effect is not the cause of the high temperature of Venus, because... The, the side away from the sun never gets around to see the sun. How does the, the heat get around to the dark side of Venus is one of the obvious questions. There are many, many questions uh, regarding this greenhouse effect heating Venus. There are no surface wind currents on Venus, so how do you get the heat from the sunward side around to the dark side that has exactly, exactly the same temperature? So Venus has some interesting questions. The only real good explanation for Venus is that it's a young planet. First off, when looking into this set of claims, on its face it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't really matter how old or young Venus is, unless it was formed within the last few weeks, the day and night temperatures, if there were no atmosphere, should be remarkably different. But therein lies the whole reason that McKinney is wrong, which, again, is going to be a mantra of this episode as it was the last episode. In this case, he's wrong because Venus has an atmosphere. That's what spreads the heat around. One of the miscellaneous random factoids that stuck with me ever since my first year of grad school is that being on the surface of Venus is like being under a kilometer or two-thirds of a mile of ocean on Earth. That's how much pressure is there. That's how much the atmosphere is pressing down on pretty much everything. That's ignoring the heat. This means that the atmosphere is going to be, well, pretty darn dense because of all of the pressure of the atmosphere on top of it. And that means that it's going to be fairly good at conducting heat, even if the atmosphere was completely 100% stationary, which it's not. McKenney is wrong. 
there have been several probes to Venus that have measured the atmospheric winds. We do have to rely on the former Soviets, current Russians, for surface winds because the U.S. has yet to land, but they measured velocities of a few kilometers per hour, a brisk walking speed on Earth, although I would defy anyone to walk in a kilometer of water. Uh, with that said, the upper atmospheric winds are significantly faster, clocking in at over 300 kilometers per hour, which is 60 times the rotational speed of the planet itself. This is compared with Earth, where the top winds are roughly 10 to 20% of Earth's rotational speed. And that's how you distribute heat on Venus. For a man who calls himself a scientist and claims to talk intelligently about this material, it's really incredibly ignorant of him to not know how heat is transferred by a planetary atmosphere. But moving on, I've talked a lot so far in this episode and in the last episode about the solar system. Let's take a detour and go to the edge of time, or at least mainstream time. See? I'm not a big proponent of the Big Bang concept myself. I think we live in uh, what they used to call a steady state, but it is anything but a steady state. Things are changing, but uh, uh, to, on our time scale of humans, they tend to seem to stay uh, pretty much the same. One might ask, why? Well, here's one of his main reasons that he expressed as to why he doesn't believe in or accept the evidence for the Big Bang. When astronomers take their picture of the universe, and they start looking back and they say, uh, we're looking back in time, and now scientists have seen uh, objects they believe that are only 500 million years after the Big Bang. But the only problem is they're in all directions when we look out in all directions. So uh, if you actually were seeing objects that were only 500 million years after the Big Bang, they would have to be consolidating in some location in the sky near where the original Big Bang had to be, but that's not the case. They're all over the sky. As with the Venusian winds, this is a clear demonstration that he does not even understand the most basic idea behind the theory. One of the most basic concepts of the Big Bang, and one that we actually as astronomers struggle to explain to the public, is that the Big Bang is an explosion of space, not an explosion in space. This means that every point in space is not the same distance from the center of the Big Bang, but it's actually every point was the Big Bang. As such, there is no center of the universe, just like there's no center of the surface of a balloon. A consequence of that, and the finite speed of light, is that as we look at more distant objects, we look further back in time. Farther away equals further in time. It doesn't matter in what direction we look, it all looks similar and younger because every direction was at the same place about 13.7 billion years ago. That's why McCanny is wrong here, at least based on the evidence that he claims, because he explicitly states that he thinks this is a problem with instead of evidence for the Big Bang, because he seems to think that it all happened at one specific spot in space as opposed to of space, and so everything should only look younger as you look closer to that specific spot. Coming back to the solar system, we can briefly talk about Planet X. To date, I have discussed 10 specific people's ideas or specific classes of ideas or evidences related to Planet X. 
Conveniently, you can find them in the Tree of Episode topics on the podcast website under the well-labeled and highly descriptive Planet X section. James McCanny has his own version, but it is a less cohesive one that is a little bit difficult to try to piece together based on his radio interviews, and I'm not going to give him money by buying his many self-published books. From what I can piece together from his website, other websites, and the hours upon hours that I listen to him at two and a half times speed, he believes that there's no such thing as an individual object that is Planet X, but that it's a bunch of objects. He certainly thinks that there are planet-like objects all waiting to be discovered, in part due to the, quote, tremendous anger, unquote, by mainstream astronomers whenever the idea is brought up. In other words, it's sort of the where there's smoke, there's fire kind of fallacy. The way that this is wrapped into his other ideas is that these other Planet X's are... Well, if you guessed comets, that's right. Remember from last time that he believes comets not only grow, but they circularize their orbits in order to become eventually bona fide planets, just like Venus. See how this all kind of fits together? Therefore, any comet is actually a potential Planet X. And he believes that there are many planets out there, and that they are growing, and they will eventually become real bona fide planets. He points to Venus, Io, Titan, and Pluto as recently formed planets that used to be comets. He also thinks that NASA is preparing us, the the plebes or the sheeple, for an announcement of this alleged fact. What's interesting about the NASA announcement that they have already discovered about a thousand planets out there, some of them getting up to the Pluto size. <clears throat> then we have the prediction with the COVID scientists saying that something could be Earth-sized out there. And then you extrapolate and say, well, there could be something Jupiter-sized out there. And, and who knows what the orbit is. Uh, but you're absolutely right that the orbits of these objects don't correspond with anything relative to this solar disk that supposedly formed our nine planets. And so along with this announcement, the thing that's very much lacking is any explanation for why we have a thousand planets all of a sudden when five years ago we only had nine. So that's absolutely correct. And how did we get 900 planets and where did they come from? And there's lots more out there all the way out to uh, extreme distances from the sun. Where did those come from? Uh, how did they form, etc., uh, etc. Et so absolutely, it kills the theory that they all form from one disk. Uh, we have, uh, for example, it's well known that Saturn has dozens of satellites that are captured. That's the only explanation. And then that begs the question, well, why isn't everything captured? To boil that down, Mr. McCanny is saying, NASA announced the ongoing discoveries of objects out beyond Pluto, This means Planet X is real. It doesn't matter that these objects are mostly smaller than Pluto. That's because one or two, or a few, are larger than Pluto. And by his estimation, that means that some could be Earth-sized. And that means that if you extrapolate even further, you could say that some are Jupiter-sized. At this point, we get into what I've discussed in past episodes. We have all-sky surveys that would have been able to detect, and were able to detect, Jupiter-sized objects in the Kuiper Belt. We haven't found any. Continuing the journey back to the solar system and even closer to home, 
we get to the Apollo moon landings, which James McCanny thinks were faked. His main line of evidence is the claim that the Apollo astronauts could not possibly have survived the supposedly deadly Van Allen belt radiation. As evidence for this, he cites Russian sources that have told him specifically that the Russians launched people to the Van Allen belts and they came back, quote, roasted, end quote. When asked for any evidence of this, he said he has none other than these anonymous Russian sources. I discussed this claim at length in episode 5 of the podcast, so I'm not going to go into it again here. But, when confronted by a person, or actually a faxer, because this was back in the day in 03, who pointed out that this was a giant public relations and would have been a public relations issue, that every second world country, mainly Russia and China, would have crowed at the top of their lungs about this, McKenney's response was simply, How often at that time did you hear news from Russia? When pressed for more by Art Bell during that interview, and Art was at least willing to challenge him a little bit, he responded again with simply, quote, But who in this country would have believed it? End quote. To me, these are nonsensical counter-arguments. Even if we give him the huge and wrong leap of faith that no one outside of Russia or China ever heard anything from inside of those countries, we'd still know about it now. If either country could have proven that the U.S. faked the moon landings, they would have screamed it as loudly as they could have around the world, or at the very least within their own countries. And people talk, and they keep records. It would have been at least front-page news in those countries. And yet, there's no reputable records from any country that show this being the case. In my opinion, it shows a profound contempt for the listener to think that they'll buy this explanation. But when you go beyond that and the radiation claims, he does get a bit more sciency by repeating yet another tired old claim that we have plenty of great high-powered telescopes on or orbiting Earth, so why can't we take photos of the moon landing sites and prove it that way? Here's what I suggest as a scientist, and I've suggested this to NASA, is let's do some observations of the moon. We have given NASA and these astronomers gigantic telescopes that are very capable of focusing and taking photographs of those lunar landing sites. Well, now that is true, isn't it? And uh, I have suggested that. Now, I would think that these guys would be jumping at the bit to show us how powerful their telescopes are Mm -hmm. and show us those lunar landing sites. I've addressed this also before, in this case in episode 56. The reason is very, very simple, and it gets to fundamental properties of optics that, as a guy who was trained in physics and taught physics, he should know. For optical imaging of the Apollo sites from Earth, you would need a visible light optical telescope that is at least 340 meters, or 1,214 feet, across. That is basic, fundamental physics. However, James McCanny seems to ignore basic physics and invent his own to get around it. He did this by talking about the Hubble Space Telescope photographing Pluto. And they proceeded to take a picture of the planet Pluto and Charon, its moon. And with that pixel count on Pluto, I was able to calculate the resolution, the real resolution of the Hubble Space Telescope. Right. It is very capable of resolving the lunar landing sites. And we have telescopes on Earth 
which have much more resolving power. Again, he's wrong. Hubble's photos of Pluto, the raw photographs, show Pluto to be only a few pixels wide. Let's use a round number and say that it's about five pixels wide, which it's really not exaggerating. That's about how big it is from Hubble. The scientists can get more pixels across it by doing incredibly complicated processing and changing the pointing of the telescope such that Pluto moves just half a pixel from where it was. By doing this process called dithering, and then combining the different photographs once you've dithered them uh, through the pointing in the computer, you can get a synthetic image that is higher resolution. But that's not the real resolution of the telescope itself. Pluto is about 4.9 billion, with a B, kilometers away, which means from basic trigonometry, Pluto is going to be about 0.1 arc seconds across, or that it appears about 18,000 times smaller than the full moon. Multiplying this out as if we were duplicating McCanny's method, this gives you pixels on the moon that are roughly 50 to 100 meters across. And that's only if you use the incredibly complicated pointing and processing that was done for Pluto. To quote the guys that made the Pluto images from the Hubble data, quote, This has taken four years and 20 computers operating continuously and simultaneously to accomplish, end quote. In other words, McCanny was wrong. Hubble can't photograph the Apollo artifacts on the moon. Ground-based telescopes can't photograph the Apollo artifacts on the moon. But then, of course, since 2009, we have had the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter with its narrow-angle camera in orbit, which, in orbit of the moon, which has taken images of the moon with pixel scales better than 20 centimeters. And we have imaged every Apollo landing site and the landing sites of several other craft and shown the artifacts from these missions. When confronted with this kind of information, McKinney has responded with statements like the following, and this was taken from his Thought of the Day from February 9th of 2014. Quote, Apologists fend off these nutcase attacks with so-called debunkers, a band of NASA Trekkies of dubious scientific credentials and, to say the least, who have no first-hand knowledge of the lunar program, let alone any credible evidence that the lunar landings ever occurred. To me, the case is simple science. For anyone making a scientific claim, the burden of proof is on them. NASA, the claimant, has never, never, never and those are in capital letters, presented the slightest shred of conclusive evidence that it did anything close to going to the moon, let alone landing and bringing men back. The LRO Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter was planned, and a major scientific goal of that mission was to conclusively return high-resolution pics of all seven lunar landing sites. It produced a few low-pixel frames of worse quality than your cell phone camera could produce, and never, again in caps, produced the pre-announced high-resolution pics that should have shown down to the smallest pebble and footprint the corresponding terrain shown in the alleged lunar landing photos that NASA released and are still publicly available. End quote. Or, on January 28, 2011, he wrote that absolutely no one associated with Apollo, the thousands of people who worked on it, not a single one of them ever wrote a book about it. Therefore, it was a hoax. Except that to make that claim, McCanny has to ignore the literally hundreds of books written about Apollo by those very people he says never wrote a book about it. 
This is why I've labeled him, at least to a certain extent, a quote-unquote denier. When confronted with clear, hard evidence that contradicts his views, even after it was that evidence that was asked for, he simply refuses to accept it. He even lies about it to the extent of saying no one who was involved with Apollo wrote a book about it, when all you have to do is go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Google, maybe even Wikipedia, and you can see that there are dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands, of books written about Apollo by people who were involved with Apollo. For the last science topic, I'm going to discuss James' views on weather and hurricanes, by this point, it shouldn't surprise you when I say that he believes hurricanes, and most weather in general, is caused by electrical energy from space. Space, space, space. Here's an example from May 23, 2013. They always say weather is energy personified. If you look at the uh, National Weather Service, they don't tell you where weather comes from. They just try and report weather. Uh, a lot of times they can't predict weather, and that's because they don't have any uh, real predictive uh, information in their models. But what I do is I tell you where weather comes from, what causes it, where does that energy come from. Uh, so let's take the example of the weather system moving through Texas right now. That weather system developed in Texas. Where does that energy come from? It didn't come across Arizona. New Mexico didn't come up from Mexico. It didn't come from the north. It developed right there. That energy is coming from outer space and uh, our connection into electrical currents that are passing by Earth. A lot of the water comes from outer space because that water didn't come across Arizona and New Mexico. It didn't come up from Mexico. It didn't come from the Baja. It developed right in Texas. So uh, <laughs> you see these things developing. Where did all that water come from that's right now in those storm systems in Texas? The only place is up. I'm sounding a little bit like a broken record at this point, but the problem with this is he is simply wrong. First off, the National Weather Service, or NWS, in the United States makes a product, a weather forecast. That's their job. This is just as a butcher who will make you sausage, and that sausage didn't come from space or the ether or Narnia. You just don't really see and probably don't want to see how it's made. By the same token, the NWS will create a weather forecast based on a lot of meteorological science, but they tend not to tell you how they do it because the end user doesn't care, and probably most would have a hard time caring less about how it's done. Maybe you'd care less about how your CPU is made, rather than just buy the box from Intel, AMD, or whomever. If you want to know how it's done, 10 seconds on Google or your internet search engine of choice will tell you. Or take a basic weather and climate geology course at school. I did this as part of my geology minor as an undergraduate. It's really not that hard. Weather on Earth is caused, weather in general, is caused by an uneven distribution of energy. Not electrical energy, but heat energy. And McKinney should know this, because he's usually introduced as a professor of physics and mathematics. What happens is that heat is going to flow from an area of high heat to an area of low heat. That's why, if you remember back to my opening the door example and my house cooling down from the previous episode, the house cooled down. It was hotter in the house than it was outside. 
Heat flowed from the hot house to the cold outside, creating a breeze because the air molecules, and snow molecules in the last week or so, were physically moving locations. The broader system, that's Earth, there are going to be two primary heat sources, the Sun inputting energy and Earth releasing energy because of its internal heat. Obviously, the Sun is only going to heat the side facing it, causing the side away to cool down. That, by its very nature, creates a temperature difference, and basic laws of physics wanting to equalize that temperature difference are going to result in heat transport across the globe. The same thing happens with ocean currents, transporting heat all over the planet. If it weren't for ocean currents, Europe would be as cold as that frozen northern wasteland that us Americans refer to as Canada. A second part of James McKenney's weather, I guess, conspiracy in this case, is that he thinks weather is easily manipulated by laser beam satellites that shine lasers through the atmosphere. They ionize it, and therefore they change how weather happens, such as redirecting hurricanes. We've had these satellites apparently since about 2002. And these laser satellites can also cause earthquakes. I mention this part more as an aside because there's really no good way to disprove it other than to say it's implausible. In reality, the burden is on James McCanny to prove his claim. It's not on my shoulders in order to say he's wrong. He really has to provide the evidence for it. Unlike what he was saying about NASA and the moon landings and other stuff, but we're on to weather at this point. So finally, as a third part to his weather claims, we get to a specific example of our weather coming from space. Here's what's going on, and I, I was looking for the cause of this two months ago. I said, something is going on here. This weather, by the way, weather doesn't just happen. It's energy personified. That energy comes from someplace. And I was looking and looking. I said, this, these weather systems we're seeing have to be driven by something. And I looked all over the solar system and it turns out we connected electrically, very strong electrical connection with the planet Saturn. And I thought, wow, if this is true, it's going to carry us way into May. And I made that prediction at the time, and that is what has been going on. Sorry, I had to cut him off in the middle of the last word. George Norrie had chimed in in the beginning of, or the middle of on. So anyway, for those who didn't catch that, basically James McKenney looked for a correlation and assumed causation. In this case, weird weather was caused by Saturn, was the conclusion. If you think that this sounds a little bit like astrology, I had that same thought as well. Since this episode hasn't been very mathy, let's go for it. Let's assume that we believe Maxwell's equations and that electricity follows an inverse square law for intensity. It's called a law for a reason, mind you. It's the fact that the intensity of electricity falls off with the square of the distance, so if you are five times farther away from something, the intensity is 1 25th. That's because 25 is 5 squared. It's the same for gravity. It follows an inverse square law. Now let's also assume that we have a spacecraft that G operates on electricity that is in orbit of Saturn, which we do. It's called Cassini and has been there in orbit since about 2004. Cassini does not orbit in a nice circular orbit, but it's widely variable. From what a quick search on Google got me, we can put a very rough number of 1 million kilometers from Saturn for Cassini's orbit. For a very 
Very round number, Saturn's a bit over 1 billion with a B kilometers from Earth. So, Cassini, 1 million, Earth, 1 billion. Now, let's apply the inverse square law. 1 billion divided by 1 million, and you square that. 1 billion over a million is a thousand. Square a thousand, and you have a million. What this means, if you're still following me, or if you got lost, uh, what this means in summary is that an electrical connection with Saturn at Earth would necessarily have had to have been 1 million, with an M, times stronger at Cassini, because electricity follows an inverse square law. Even if we're talking about some sort of directed energy be beam weapon thing like a Star Trek phaser or the Death Star's main weapon fired out of the moon Mimas, something like that, and so you could try to make the argument that Cassini shouldn't have been affected, just Earth, well, the electrical discharge would still have had to have done something to Saturn's magnetosphere, and that would have affected Cassini, or the magnetic detection instruments on Cassini. You can't get out of this. It would have had to affect Cassini in some way. It didn't. A million-fold increase of electrical output magically happening from Saturn would have fried Cassini in actuality, and yet it's still operating just as well as before. Therefore, yet again, James McCanny is wrong. I've managed to get through the previous episode, and most of this episode, so far, with everything considered, with being reasonably polite and objective, and showing James McCanny to be also himself reasonably polite, if somewhat misguided, I might politely say. At least, perhaps, except for that part about the Apollo moon landing stuff. That's because the majority of this episode, and the last episode, has been based on what he's stated publicly on mass media, namely Coast to Coast AM. However, he also has his own radio program and his own website, the latter being the letter J, and then his last name, McCanny, then science.com. On his website, he often posts very, very roughly weekly thoughts, in quotes being thoughts, I read one of them and repeated the gist of a second one earlier with the Apollo information. This episode was recorded on November 30th of 2014. Here's what he posted two weeks earlier when I wrote this episode on November 14th of 2014. Quote, Cometary science within the European and USA Gov supported space agencies has struck an all-time low. With the sighting spring comet encounter with Mars and the Rosetta mission to land on a comet, all the results clearly prove two things. One, comets could not possibly be dirty snowballs, and two, my plasma discharge comet model is absolutely correct. It is so far beyond disgusting as the morons, parentheses PhDs, within these agencies have the gall to repeatedly admit that nothing they see corresponds to their anticipated fairy tale science, yet they state that, quote, they will work on discovering the workings of comets, end quote, but of course within the framework of their Disneyland concepts, how disgusting, how very pathetic, and what a complete waste of valuable resources. We have been experiencing heavier-than-normal ordering on the sales page, and I, there are some items that we will soon have to limit orders. Follow the link below to order now before the Christmas holiday rush kicks in. Jim McCanny. End quote. Another one from two months ago. Quote, I just saw an episode of the recent series Cosmos on the History Channel. Barf. 
that's a lot of F's and barf is capitalized. Talk about, oh, with uh, three exclamation points. Talk about the summary of tier two fairy tale science. Three exclamation points. It took all I could do to listen to the official dumb explanations of the mass extinctions throughout the history of the world. Wow. Again, three exclamation points. No mention of any activity from outer space. According to them, the Earth just jumped up and did all this by its lonesome self. Complete garbage. Fluff, fluff, and more hand-waving fluff. Taking the true meaning of the term PhD, parentheses, piles higher and deeper, to new levels. Jim McCanny. End quote. Here's what he wrote on February 14th of 2005, which you can access by the Internet Wayback Machine. Quote, Hey, NASA is Phil Plate, Plate is spelled wrong, and that other clown that no one can pronounce his name, the best you can come up with, these are third-tier pissants and left their minds on the coat rack when they checked in to get their PhD piece of paper. How about sending out at least a tier two scientist like Yeomans, Muma, and Ahern, or to a great Hal Weaver to defend the dirty snowball comet model? Why do they hide behind these tired outreach bozos? Or are the JPL Goddard Monakea boys hiding and positioning themselves to release a NASA new electric comet model? You guys really stink big time. By the way, throughout this, there are three question marks and three exclamation points. You people cannot be serious. Then there are your other hired hands who intercept my email, create similar websites like the James McCanny Science page that was used to redirect people as to your agent spoofed my email address advertising pornography. Or how about he disinfo crew that tries to badmouth me and carry on your crazy Planet X BS and try to drag my good name into the disinformation campaign that you created, parentheses, and which failed due to my efforts. Remember, it was me that caught you clowns passing photos to the alien contactee of your contrived Planet X campaign of May 15th, 2003. You guys are really pathetic. James McCanny. End quote. I don't bring in these two examples as a way to mine for ways to besmirch McCanny's character or as a way to poison the well. If I wanted to do that, I would have let in with them rather than having them at the end of this episode. Actually, at the end of this two-parter episodes. Rather, since these two episodes are meant to talk about the ideas of this individual, I think it's only fair to bring in the broader context of those ideas and how he approaches them. He's really rather polite on Coast to Coast. I have over 26 hours worth of audio of him, and I listened to most of it before writing this two-parter. I even listened to him do a full three-hour debate with David Morrison about Emanuel Velikovsky. And even though he was supporting the Velikovsky model and Morrison was not, or he at least supported parts of it, McCanny was still very polite and reasoned throughout the debate. What does come off, though, is the conspiratorial nature of his belief system. Here's an excerpt from November 4th of 2010, when he was asked yet again to explain his model of comets. You believe comets a little more serious than this. You don't think they're just these icy fireballs. You think they're made out of iron and rock. What's the difference if, you know, what? because you two differ, you and, and some of the scientists at NASA, what does that mean? Well, it's basically, a, it's a huge issue because what I say is they it's a rock, it's a piece of material. It could have ice on it. It doesn't have to have. But what happens is every piece of material in the solar system 
is discharging the solar capacitor. It's an electrical phenomenon. And if you understand that, you start to see all of the phenomenon related to comets, the plasma tail, the sunward spike. You see all of this, and it's very readily explained. And none of this is readily explained by the dirty snowball comet model. Uh, but you find uh, the so-called experts from NASA year after year repeating the same concept. But what it really means to me is that space is very electrical, and we could tap into this same electrical condition to supply power to Earth at a relatively inexpensive cost. Nothing is totally free. But uh, therein lies the whole issue to me, that it's this, the, if you realize that comets are not dirty snowballs, but they're a discharge of a, the electrical conditions in the solar system, the first question out of everybody's mouth would be, well, can we use this for power? And the answer is yes. So what does that do to the people in control of the world? We're talking about the bankers, the people in charge. They control the world through energy, oil, nuclear power, and coal. Those are the big ones. Mm -hmm. And then propane is used a bit also. But these are very controlling forces. And if you took that away, one of their biggest tools to control the public would go away. That's just one example, but it clearly shows that there is a conspiratorial mindset underlying his ideas, and that's before you get to any of his writing. I suppose in fairness, it would be hard not to have a conspiratorial mindset if you really believe that everything works one way, but everyone else says or believes it works another way. How would you explain it without a conspiracy? He maintains this in much the same way that Richard Hoagland does, by envisioning a Tier 1 science cast that includes dark projects and secret telescopes and other stuff, where they, of course, know all about McCanny and use his ideas while also putting out disinformation. Then there's the Tier 2, which are for plebes like me and probably you, no offense, meant, who putz around while maintaining the status quo because we're too closed-minded to think of anything else. And then, at least based on one of the quotes that I just read from him, there's a Tier 3, which actively puts out the disinformation that's based on the Tier 2 information. So it's even the, it's the stupidest of the stupid. At least that's how I would put it in my words, based on what I've heard and read of his stuff. His conspiratorial mindset tends to extend beyond just astronomy, though. If you can navigate through his website, which looks much like Hoagland's in that it seems to have been designed in the 1990s and not updated since, with its light-patterned blue background and bold, italicized yellow font text throughout many very, very lengthy pages— You'll see that he sells stainless steel bottles so that you don't get poisoned by plastic. He sells water filters that screen out chemicals and radiation and oil. And he's anti-GMO, among various other things. I mention these, again, not to try to poison the well, except maybe a little bit to comment about his website, because it's very annoying and I had to read through these things for the podcast episode preparation, but to point out that rarely do conspiracies exist in isolation. Rather, the people who hold them tend to latch on to them and other conspiracies, especially once they've reached the conclusion that the entire scientific establishment, or establishment, is made out of, quote, disgusting morons, end quote, which is one of his terms for PhD scientists, and that you know a lot more than they do. 
Overall, McCanny talks a lot of talk, but his ideas are fairly ridiculous, and his writings are poorly edited rants that literally spew misinformation, if I'm being generous, or outright lies, if I'm not. One of his main tactics is to try to support his ideas by selectively quote mining, and yes, I realize selectively quote mining is a redundant statement, but I'm sticking with it, in order to find evidence for his ideas and to try to disprove mainstream ideas. After listening to him for over two dozen hours and reading a lot of his material and material about him, I've come to the conclusion, and my opinion, that he really believes what he says and that he's so invested in it that every shred of evidence he can find supports his ideas, and he takes the most literal statements and bits and pieces of science to try to twist the science to make the mainstream view seem wrong, when in fact it's just how he's using the evidence. I could be wrong, but that's the impression that I get. Other times, as I've pointed out in a few instances in this in the previous episode, he simply lies, or is willfully ignorant, if, again, I'm being generous, in order to make things up to support his ideas. While I'm quick to say that this is my opinion in order to avoid a libel suit, um, this isn't just my opinion. An excerpt from the talk page of his deleted Wikipedia article states, quote, A Google search for McCanny Dipole Redshift suggests that his work is mostly discussed only in internet forums and on his website. The claims in the article as to notability are unverifiable and not backed up by any citations. There is no mathematical problem that is known as the prime number problem, which is something that he claimed to solve. The website devoted to this exudes wackiness, charitably. This is original research unfit for Wikipedia. Less charitably, it's probably a scam. It's just possible that his physics is good, but his math is worse than wrong. It's gibberish. I spent some time reading in hopes of finding some claim as to what problem was solved, but only saw an ever-increasing crackpot index. End quote. He's also published, or self-published, that is, several books. There's Planet X Comets and Earth Changes, or Surviving Planet X Passage. There's also Atlantis Tesla, the Colbrain Connection. His Principia Meteorologica, the physics of sun-earth weather, which was his attempt to capitalize on Isaac Newton's book. Then there's Calculate Primes, direct propagation of prime numbers. Then finally there's the Diamond Principle. In them, McCanny lays out his many ideas, but you can simply tell from some of the titles, like the Atlantis to Tesla one, that they are fanciful. Despite my opinion, and apparently a few others, on this perspective, and his rants and overall conspiracy, I don't think that he's completely crazy. I was in fact surprised when I found the rants on his website because my only previous exposure had been through Coast to Coast AM, where he even has done debates, as I mentioned earlier. He always came off as reasonably measured and calm, which is evidence that he clearly has a grasp of a time and place for where he needs to be polite and measured. This is in contrast with some other people that I've talked about on this podcast and who have very active internet websites. Um, again, I suppose internet website is a redundant term, but I'm sticking with it and not editing it. Throughout this episode and the previous, though, I have talked a lot about, by conservative counting, a half dozen of his non-mainstream ideas. These are just a sampling. These could easily have been a three-part or longer series. He also has ideas about alternative energy, 
more about Velikovsky, a lot more on comets, like the idea that they grow rather than shrink with time, the sun's energy is produced on the surface rather than in the center, Atlantis is real and Tesla made a death ray, astrology, and various other things. In the interest of keeping this under or close to an hour, and for my own sanity and probably yours, I've left those out. I think a user of Yahoo Answers perhaps wrote it best, quote, running around on late night radio shows, complaining that NASA and the government are trying to pollute minds. Well, that is no way to be taken seriously, end quote. I think that talking about this is okay and worthwhile, though, because by now, you should have a fairly good idea of the types of claims that James McKenney makes, also the reasons that he's wrong, and my ultimate intent. Why the mainstream idea is what it is, and not what McKenney thinks it is, despite his rants about conspiracy. I think this is important not to personally attack him, which I don't really think I have done, or at least not nearly as much as I could have, or maybe thinking in my own head, but to show how pseudoscientists think, the way that they construct their arguments, and how to go about looking into them by way of examples. In new news for this episode, listener Graham sent me an article from Universe Today entitled NASA's Van Allen Probes Spot Impenetrable Radiation Barrier in Space. This is an article by Matt Williams. I like Universe Today and their RSS feed is in my reader. This article's headline, unfortunately, is sensationalistic and could be used to lend support to Apollo hoax people including James McCanny, whose primary line of evidence is that the Van Allen radiation belts are impenetrable by humans to at least live through the exposure. In fact, the article's third paragraph on Universe Today states, quote, According to new research from NASA's Van Allen probes, it now appears that these belts may be nearly impenetrable, a finding which could have serious implications for future space exploration and research, end quote. That kind of sounds like Apollo couldn't have made it. Unfortunately, you have to dig much deeper to realize that he's talking about tiny, tiny charged particles. Quote, The Van Allen probe's data showed that the inner edge of the outer belt is, in fact, highly pronounced. For the fastest high-energy electrons, this edge is a sharp boundary that, under normal circumstances, cannot be penetrated. When you look at really energetic electrons, they can only come within a certain distance from Earth, said Sri Kanakal, sorry, uh, the deputy mission scientist for the Van Allen probes at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, and a co-author on the Nature paper. Quote, This is completely new. We certainly didn't expect that. End quote and end quote for the article. That's really about it. This article is talking about these Van Allen belts being impenetrable sometimes for some forms of tiny charged particles. To them, it is a literal wall. To a macroscopic space capsule, it is practically non-existent. As another bit of new news, Johnny Brandenburg is back in the news. You may remember him from episode 86, Was Mars Murdered? He thinks, basically, a nuke or multiple nukes went off on Mars, killing both the intelligent life on it and geologic processes. In the episode, I went through a lot of reasons why he's wrong. Since then, I've had a few back and forths with him that have pretty much led nowhere. 
but he's back in the news. From what I can tell, this is simply because he's published a new paper in the Journal of Cosmology. You may remember from episode 93 on the importance of peer review that the JOC is about as peer-reviewed as a standard internet flame war. The primary differences are that the JOC considers itself scholarly, and there usually isn't too much screaming in it. You can see either or both Wikipedia and or Rational Wiki, both of which have articles on the JOC for more about it. But Brandenburg having an article published in this quote-unquote journal has made headlines in the underbelly of the internet on such websites as the Daily Mail. And that's really about all I'm going to say on this one. I am very, very slowly catching up on email, but by way of an announcement for this episode, I have a request. The next episode will very likely be on conspiracy theories related to Rosetta, its orbit around Comet 67P, Philae, which I may be able to pronounce properly in the episode, its landing on Comet 79P or P67 or whatever it is, I'm not editing at this point, and related things. If you have happened to hear or see anything related to this comet or the larger Rosetta mission that you think would make a good contribution to that episode, please let me know about it before December 12th, 2014, in case you're listening to this in a future year. And with all of that said, this has been a very long episode. Well, that does just about wrap up this topic on the 121st edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. I thank you for listening and hope that you enjoyed it and learned stuff at the same time. For more information about this podcast, you can visit the website, podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, you can use the feedback form on the website or send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, a comment on the blog post for the episode, or even a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast. You can also tweet me, at pseudoastro. That's P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, and random people that you'll probably never meet in real life. <laughs>